This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For more than 40 years, Harold Evans has been a giant figure in the world of print on both sides of the Atlantic. Starting out as a 16-year-old cub reporter in the north of England, Evans was still in his late 30s when he was named editor of the Sunday Times of London in 1967 for what turned out to be a 14-year reign. In 1984, he moved to the United States, taking top jobs in magazines and book publishing before deciding to concentrate on writing books. Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Evans about his latest book, My Paper Chase, True Stories of Vanished Times, an Autobiography and about Prince's rich past and uncertain future in the new digital age. So, Harold Evans, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a pleasure. You grew up in a working-class family in, in, in the north of England. Your father worked for the railways, and your mother ran a small grocery store. Uh, what inspired you to become a journalist and to remain one? The original impetus was going along a beach with my father in 1940 when I was 12 and he came across these men who'd been at Dunkirk the day before, soldiers totally bedraggled. I was uh, very annoyed with him for spending time talking to them. They told him a story of privation, lack of equipment and their morale was very bad, very low. They just had a terrible time escaping from the Nazis. But back at the boarding house, there was a newspaper headline giving you the completely wrong impression about what had gone on. And the newspapers were all suggesting that these men, these defeated soldiers, these survivors, wanted to get back to Dunkirk as soon as they could. It wasn't true. And uh, it was my first realisation that I love newspapers. I love them. You want to stop it? Uh, no, I'm just, just checking. Yeah. Please continue. Is this, is this a picture image too? Yeah, it tells me that you're oh. continuing to okay. speak. I, I, I love newspapers. I love Beachcomber, which is very funny, the surreal humour. I love Rupert the Bear. I didn't really take much notice of the real news, a bit about the football. And then as I got a bit older and into teenagers, I realised that this epiphany had made me think about what newspapers did. I was very jealous. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to sit at the feet of Winston Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt at these wartime conferences as Alan Moorhead did. And I realised that I wanted nothing more in my life than to be a reporter. Partly because of the epiphany started on Dunkirk Beach. Partly because I did love the marvellous mosaic of the newspaper in which I could read the story and look at Rupert the Bear, the cartoon, and laugh my head off at Beachcomber's surreal humour. Beachcomber, of course, led to Monty Python and all these other examples of English surreal humour. And since I was actually in school at this stage, even though I'd left school I was to leave school at 15. I didn't get into high school. I'd, English composition was my best subject. And I still have the essays I wrote when I was 15, which are... Actually, they're not badly written, but the imagination is totally lurid. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, creaking floorboards and menace. And maybe I was excoriating anxiety that way. So I actually became top of science too after a terrible, and I, much as my passion is music, I got 2% of music, which was terrible. <laughs> but uh, so the fact that I could do English and get really good marks and really good marks in history and not so good in mathematics, the science results when I came top twice may have been a fluke because one particular aspect of science, like the gasification of coal, what you could get out of coal really interested me. So then I was set on being a journalist and I became editor of the school magazine. I realised how much I wanted it because I lobbied, told everybody that I would be the best. I was only 15, for God's sake. So this passion to be a reporter, I realised from reading memoirs of Fleet Street that to be a reporter in 1943 or 4, you needed one requirement, which was to be able to write down what people said accurately, shorthand. My mother and father were not rich, but they got me into a girls' college, a business college full of girls, and I became an expert shorthand writer. I really still use it, not always read it as easily as I used to do. And uh, typing, where the girls were faster uh, than we were, but the shorthand, we, the two boys in the class were better. So here I am at 16, I've managed by some in very good teaching, even though I'm not in the real high school, I've managed by, thanks to a very good teacher who was a Shakespearean, uh, buff passion of Shakespeare I managed to get the highest the school certificate that qualified you for university there were only five of us in the whole school who did that that was because of the teachers so I'm at 16 I don't have a single thought of going to university because my class did not go to university uh, and later on I discovered that when I'd come out of the Royal Air Force and wanted to go to university, I couldn't because I had no Latin. Anyway, at the age of 16, I went to the board, uh, 15, I went into the board, uh, business college, I continued French and German. My French was passable, my German, I only had one year. Die Morgan, die geht is on the Alf, I can remember, put the verb at the end of the sentence. You know, Mark Twain made a joke about this, and I improved on Mark Twain. Mark Twain said the German is someone who dives at the, in the Atlantic and emerges on the side with his verb in his mouth. And I said, I improved on that. I said, the sentence should read, the German is a man who dives in the Atlantic and the other side in, with his verb in his mouth emerges. <laughs> <laughs> so the sentence should be at the end the verb should be at the end of the sentence anyway so uh, I applied everywhere and I finally got a job on a weekly newspaper that's great uh, what was uh, when you started out as a journalist what were some of the principles you learned uh, that, that have stayed with you throughout your career uh, about what journalism truly means? Well, I don't want to call it a principle, but the first real scare 
there were two or three, but the first real scare was getting something wrong. But the first principle was getting things right on simple accuracy, like getting somebody's name right in the paper, like I get your name, M U K U L, right, okay, I've now got it, okay. But in a quick, in those days, we'd even have to spell and then we'd lose the job or get balled out. Uh, I think I've written in my paper, Chase, how I made a mistake in transcribing the results of a dog show and all hell broke loose. I mean, you realised that people value seeing their name spelt correctly. And when your own name is misspelt, you're kind of furious. You feel as though you've been rubbed out, liquidated. Mm-hmm. So accuracy, and, and accuracy, by the way, not obviously in such a simple thing like a name, but also in when I did my shorthand and getting people right, and I actually re- recorded exactly what they said. So the absolutely overriding requirement for accuracy. Second thing was you will not succeed unless you persist. So I tell the story in the book of being sent to visit a bereaved mother and father and it nearly killed me. I was very shy and I had to persist all the time in telling myself that I was not going to get anywhere by being shy. I had to ask difficult questions and if I got shouted at, I had to be shouted at. And similarly, when I went to uh, incidents where the police were stopping us getting in and realised that one of the parts of the job was to actually persist and persist. So the need for uh, accuracy and persistence, and with those two, it sounds made me sound rather highfalutin, but integrity, that you treat like Immanuel Kant, I learned later, said treat people as an end in themselves and not a means to your own ends. So learning to respect the people which was a learning process, and not just simply to exploit their misery or exploit their knowledge, but treat them with respect. And the thing which came that to me was, because my father was extremely clever but uneducated, I hated him to see him not treated with respect. So that's the integrity part of it. I mean, a fourth thing which comes out of it, one of my, my proudest moment on the newspaper was when I, re- I had an interview with a man who had been very badly treated by the, by the government after going to into World War Two and contracted a di- tuberculosis, which was going to kill him. And they weren't giving him any compensation and I wrote this report, which was sympathetic to him. And I said, I didn't make, I couldn't put my personal opinion in, but it said something about there seemed to be an injustice. And then a member of parliament actually got him compensation. Now, I don't think my article actually was decisive, but I thought it might, it could have had an influence there. And so I realised that the press had a persuasive power apart from 
recording what had gone on, which remained a very important function. There may be a persuasive function for the press. And in 1973, you wrote Editing and Design, you know, five volumes uh, about editing, typography, layout, that became the Bible for journalists, not just in the UK, but in a lot of the developing world. Uh, how has the emergence of digital publishing changed the way you think about editing and design? Uh, what, what principles carry over from the past and, and, and what's new? Mm. What changes with the new technologies? Well, <laughs> the new technologies made what used to be very difficult, it's made it very simple. If you think of the difference between editing on paper and uh, writing a sentence on paper or moving a paragraph where it doesn't make sense up to where it does make sense, or starting again when you're writing and you've made a mistake in the second paragraph and you pull the page out of the typewriter and you have the physical labour of time pounding the keys again. All that has been revolutionised by digital, so today's journalists are enormously lucky. I mean, it's just incredibly easy. Now, the downside of that since it's incredibly easy to write and edit on the computer, you get a huge amount of blather. You've only got to look at the blog sites. You get a lot of hot air. And so the habits of conciseness and, uh, may not be encouraged. The, in terms of photography uh, and design, which of course I'm still very passionate about, again, the ease of it, the beneficial thing is the ease of it is absolutely incredible. I tell the story uh, in one of my books recently, which is republished about pictures on a page. I sent a photographer to an earthquake in Sicily. I think the earthquake happened on Thursday. He got to Sicily, the airport was closed, he drove like mad for 300 miles or something, got arrived there just as they were pulling a man out and got the photograph. This is now Friday and the paper is going to press, or was it Saturday? Anyway, he then had to drive three or four hundred miles, and there were no ferries, try and find somewhere to get across to England, across the Channel, then get to London, <laughs> then develop the print. This is a man called Brian Wharton. Now he could uh, stay behind in Sicily and just send it back out there. Mm. So the ease of it and the ease of retrieval of library photographs digitally. I mean, take the Daily Beast, my wife's website. Uh, it's the, the quality of the photography is phenomenal. Right. Well, from it, you still need a good eye. Well, the photo editor has a good eye. So her job, I mean, she has got not thousands of images to choose from as I had from library but millions of images and instantly available okay so the downside of that one of the downsides of that is that uh, it's easier to manipulate photographs so that they say something that's not true in terms of design and laying things out it's slightly more difficult in the sense to learn 
the proper codes and systems to make a page is not as simple as it is to draw on a piece of paper. So when my wife redesigns a page on the beast, uh, she calls in coders. So there has to be a code written. That takes a little time. And then when the code is written, I say on all these websites, it's less flexible than a newspaper is. With hot metal, I could just throw it around. Mm-hmm. Or I could draw a scheme on a page and it would be turned into... So there's less flexibility on that. And of course, since a lot of the communication today is on the screen, the screen's more constricted than a newspaper page. So some of the drama of newspaper layout is not capable of being realised on the screens. Maybe we'll get used to it. Uh, and uh, the iPad is coming out soon. That interests me greatly because... I mean, the Daily Beast has just had an application mm-hmm. approved with Apple's iPhone, so I've just looked at it this morning. It's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But when I look at uh, Kindle, say, uh, which has my paper chases on Kindle, but Kindle can't cope with this book of mine, mm-hmm. which is photography. Right. And journalism, and photojournalism, they can't cope with this because they can't. Right. This is in black and white, never mind the one that's in colour. Right, right. So maybe the iPad will solve that. But do you think going beyond the question about newspapers, then there's the question about books. And I actually think that, although it's a vested interest, I actually think that the well illustrated book has more capacity to penetrate. Than simple text, or I've written both. How, how will the prevalence of e-readers like Kindle and the iPad change books? What will the book of the future look well, like? Well, at the moment, the illustrated book, in colour or black and white, I mean a fully illustrated book, is not really available on Kindle. It will be on iPad. Now, I don't know how iPad's going to go. It's not started out yet. And it's going to be, apparently, people who've used it tell me it's very easy to turn the page. Turning the page is a bit of a nuisance on Kindle. You have to press a button. You just do that on the touchscreen process. I don't know how it's going to affect it. I mean, I do believe that there's a tremendous uh, virtue. Let me take the book, which isn't mine. This is one of the world's greatest war photographers, John McCullen. And this is a book he took when he was with the Marines at Wade. But, you know, the quality of the, of the images are here and the photography, look at that, for quality in black and white. I mean, the, that photograph is marvellous. Absolutely. He also did other things, of course, which are more photo documentaries. So I find them marvellous. This is uh, Vietnam. Wow. I mean, it's amazing. amazing. So I still, personally... Maybe the digital age won't give a damn about any of these aesthetic qualities. But I think it was the poorer for it. Unless, of course, the, the, the technology of the iPad in a proliferates. Well, maybe the technology of the iPad that you can do in a lit- Well, here's, what, here's something. What might happen? What could possibly happen? Okay. I take... Take my iPad, iPhone, which I had this morning, 
I squeeze it and put it in my pocket. And then when I get to a cafe where I want to read, I actually open it up and the iPhone expands to the iPad. And the iPad is a book. And then I collapse the iPad and put it back in my pocket. Any wild dream you can have can come true, given digital technology. And when you think about it, all it is is north and one, north and one, north and one. Hey, jo- Ruth, I mean, Hi, this is my daughter. This is Muckle, whose real name is Bud. Nice to meet and you. <laughs> he is at the Wharton Business School, but he's, he was born in India, in Bombay. Oh, cool. And he was telling me a, a bit about his life and how Very he got nice. into journalism. And Sounds she's been good. to India. She went to the Jaipur Literary Festival. I love all. India. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I haven't seen all of it, obviously, but I went to... I learned journalism from her dad's books. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Go, Dad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> He is the best. Um, I'm, I'm what I am because of him. Oh, God. How does that make you feel? Is that an ego boost or what? It's, 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 it's a tonic for me. Oh. But it's, it's just true. It's, Thank it's an you. Honest That's thing. so great. He told me a story which I'll tell you later. Okay, well, I'll leave you to your interview. Well, Bye. Is it, it's so interesting. I'm so pleased you went to India. And... I know. Oh, it's, oh, I got this in India. And this. <laughs> <laughs> I love my mother and my wife, is, I took her, she'd never been, you know, when I was working in the 60s, she wasn't barely, in fact, she, she was about two years of age because she's much younger than I am. And so she kept so sore about India, gone about India. I mean, you have probably, I know your views are more complicated, but anyway, so she went, now she can't go enough, and I can't. <laughs> don't want to make too many long plane rides. But anyway, let's go on with this. Uh, yeah, that's cool. So sure. that's the best I can do on that. Well, that, that's that's a great, that's a very very good answer. Thank you. Uh, when you moved to the Sunday Times, you set up the Insight Team, which did some of the finest investigative journalism that has ever been done. Uh, what do you look for when you choose journalists for such assignments? It's another good question. I mean, we had individual journalists who were good at investigation, where integrity, persistence, intelligence, cultivation of context, and above all, uh, overwhelming curiosity uh, were predominant. I think one of the things about investigative journalism is recognize the difficulties of the search for truth because to get to the real truth you can meet many compromise stations on the way where you don't thoroughly get the story and to really want to persist and get the story and not just achieve an immediate effect either a sensational effect or make your name more well known uh, requires a disintegrity so, when I was appointing uh, in investigative reporters at the Sunday Times, I was always looking for somebody who had the intelligence and the integrity, and not somebody who simply wanted to expose somebody's private life or expose something or, or go halfway to explain a disaster. Now, you, obviously, sometimes you can only go halfway to explain a disaster until you've actually 
found out the real cause, say the DC-10 airliner crash, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, which took us two years to expose. It's in that book of mine, Good Times, Bad Times. Have you seen that book? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, in terms of being at the Sunday Times, I was very, very lucky that there had been a start in investigation and that I was associating, coming from the provinces, I was regarded with some suspicion mm-hmm. as a hick. And uh, so I had to prove myself. Uh, but the people I had there were really amazing. I mean, I, much of my success as an editor is owed to the team, to the journalists I appointed, and to the mixes of putting them together to create team. I created the team inside because I knew that with no single individual a complicated story to do it in any kind of reasonable time frame, nor might he have the necessary uh, affinity for mathematics or the affinity for biotechnology or whatever it may be, and more likely to have it. And of course, when I say intelligence, I mean somebody like Bruce Page, whom I may be accused of exalting uh, very much. Uh, Bruce Page could... Uh, put up the molecular structure of thalidomide one year, and the next year we'd have the engineering drawings of the DC-10. And he had the intelligence, uh, the pertinacity to persist, but just to exalt him above all others wouldn't necessarily be right. Another man called Paul Eddy, who was a freelancer and was regarded as rather low life by many people on the Sunday Times. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he had he got very interested in air air stories because he worked as a freelancer for an agency that sent out air stories. And he gradually built up a number of contacts with pilots and engineers who learned to trust him. The important point again about trust. So when a big disaster occurred on an air, and he came into our office saying, you know, the real cause of this is not that, it's probably this, it may not be this, it da 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 we gradually gave him more work. And he became the great investigative journalist on air crashes. So when the, DC-10, when the DC-10 crashed outside Paris, he was the lead investigator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's just died, and it's terribly sad. Mm. But he did. Yeah, he left school very early, and he, you know, his integrity and persistence was incredible. Sorry. So I was very lucky at the Sunday Times got to put these teams together, and. Um, also very lucky, bear this in mind, that my ability to do that uh, was exempt, and I was really uh, taken to a new height because the Sunday Times had the resources. I could send somebody anywhere. Right. I had a chairman and an ownership that wasn't going to complain about exposing things, not even when they had a business interest did they complain. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the moral leadership of Dennis Hamilton and the Thompson organisation was incredible. Incredible. When I start the Thalidomide 
investigation, the advertising director rings up and says, you know, we have £60,000 worth of advertising with them. I said, yes. And he said, it shouldn't stop you. I mean, and that was his whole... And my chairman didn't ban an eyelid. I mean, I had all that. So I had the resources. It went very different at the Northern Echo, a provincial newspaper, when I just had nothing, no money at all. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I was able to get somebody like Kenneth Hooper mm-hmm. again to, uh, to investigate that scandal. And in the end, by persistence and campaigning, we were able to get the programme established that saved thousands of women's lives. So when you've had that experience, and I had it in Manchester too, trying to get something done about the black smog, you become kind of impatient with inertia and excuses. And and I, I don't think of myself as a crusader, but you have to be... But I recognize that once you get into a story and you've found a defect, like the night dresses that are going to burn children to death, you can't just put that story in the paper, you have to do something about it. So, and some people criticize this, and I understand the reasons, because the, you start off with a disinterested observer, then you get a passionate investigator turning into crusader. And then where do you go beyond the bonds of journalism and mm. actually take up public life and a cause? Mm. And then do you lose your disinterestedness? And so mm. it's, it's interesting set of uh, issues. I've, I've tried to keep myself uh, non-partisan. Uh, I mean, just, you know, <laughs> because just to follow the party's political party or whatever. At the same time, I have a high regard for people who go into public libraries. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't get rich if you want to be rich. You only get abused. You occasionally get the satisfaction. Like my friend Alf Morris, uh, who managed to get the act passed in England that gave disabled people a chance to enter public buildings because of mm-hmm. ramps and all that, he spent... He's never really had the credit for that huge uh, amenity made to people. Or Jack Ashley, who's deaf, who threw his heart and soul into trying to get justice for the Thlidomite children. So when I'm saying that there's a shade from the journalist to the public, to the politician, don't think I'm not totally respectful of those who are in public service who do their best. If you were to look back on all the stories that you you mentioned, uh, the DC-10, the Thalidomide campaign, the the Northern Ireland uh, stories, uh, which one means the most to you uh, and and, and why? That's a tough question. I think the stories directly affecting people's lives is more obvious to see the connection between the cervical cancer story particularly means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And it means a lot to me because it was the beginning of my real campaigning career. I think that air, clean air would have come to Manchester and England maybe five or ten years later, but it would have come. Right. I, cervical cancer probably would not have 
uh, test would probably not have come for five years, so maybe 15,000, 20,000 people or so. The justice for a third of mine would never have come because the legal system uh, was not only failed to give them satisfaction against a powerful corporation, but the legal system was itself one of the problems. First, in denying any kind of freedom of speech and inquiry, and secondly, in being prepared because the lawyers were ignorant. They didn't have the... didn't do the research, your subject research. Therefore, I think probably the thalidomide is the most satisfaction because... Not only did we have to fight the drug company and the prevailing culture in the establishment in all the papers was to excuse the drug company. Why? Because they didn't do the work either. <laughs> so, so you have people saying, well, of course, it's absolutely certain. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, right. The lack of scepticism, the lack of curiosity, this is why it means so much to me. And then on top of that, to find that you've now found what is a reasonable case of truth and you're obstructed by the law mm -hmm. and the British court for years clamped down and so my greatest satisfaction, which was suggested to me, I had sit back and I'd lost the case. And then McBride, the Irish jurist, political persuasions far to the left of mine, I was a patriotic British nationalist, mm. said, why didn't you go to the European Court? Barely knew what the European Court was, even though I was a newspaper editor. But to, to be able to go to the European Commission on Human Rights, first of all, to win their recommendation that this case should proceed to the European Court, which is higher, which is in fact the only body with any authority, and to there go there and face 13 judges and find a repudiation of our own House of Lords which had sat through that trial and then to find the British government having to change the law. So there were two, why I'm proud is that it's first of all the emotional and moral satisfaction of helping these children now adults by the way and I keep up with them and secondly get the law changed and the climax of it to me was in Parliament two weeks ago, I put it on my website, when the government got up and apologised. Yes, now that's such a contrast with what I faced with Enoch Powell, who not only uh, was so obstructive about uh, cervical cancer, but then was so obstructive about thalidomide too, and then was the bloody racist too. Right. So... <laughs> so a man of great insight, so sad case he is, such a sad case, an absolutely brilliant man, and full of moral, moral qualities, and yet, having read Hayek, uh, philosophy, which, as you know, is sort of uh, dirigist, uh, individualistic, mm -hmm. he then could see no good in which there could be public intervention, and so once you see this, this uh, I regard this as a parasite in his bloodstream, Mm. It wouldn't enable him to have a normal reaction. You know? mm. Mm. Interesting. That's a great answer. Uh, 
If you had the insights team with you today, what would you have them working on? Well, I tell you, uh, it's, I, I put it. Let me put it this way to you: uh, I like to think. I can't prove it. I like to think that if I had the insight team in the last five years, say, that one of them, particularly on the business section, would have come to me and have said, you know, uh, we did a lot of exposing of embezzlement. If he'd come to me and said, the rating agencies are giving very high ratings now to companies we think are not really sound. I would say, well, I know what I would have said. Well, show me. Let's get into it. Mm. Why are they getting triple A ratings that they don't deserve it? We discovered they were being paid. Mm. That would be one story. And secondly, if somebody, if I'd gone, if I'd just even listened, as I probably would have done, to some of the arguments about housing in this country, and seeing what Freddie May and Fannie Mac and how they were being bribed. By, they, were, they were bribing politicians to let them do reckless things. I think the inside team, and I really mean this, we would have suddenly woke up and realised that the whole financial scene, including leverage in the banks, you're trained as an economist, so was I. I'm, I'm not kept up with the mathematical side of economics, but I know enough to know that if you go beyond certain ratios, you're not going to have the money if there's any kind of call for it. <laughs> So I like to think that the inside team would have blown... Now, here's a point which I know for a fact. As sure as I really do know this, I'm convinced of this. If we'd put together those things, which I think we would have done, I think with some roving, some intellects like Page and so on, and realise that we weren't just facing just a rating agency that was greedy, or we weren't just facing a, the corrupt system in America of money by legislation. I think, well, if we put it all together, which I think we could have probably could have done, because there were a few people saying a few things, talked to the right people. I know for a certain I would have campaigned on it week after week after week after week after week. We're in danger, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So that's one thing out of the investigation. I think, too, uh, I knew, again, that one of my former Insight reporters got, and he told me about it since then, that uh, I believe there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I remember the Council of Foreign Relations. I went there, believe me. But one of my reporters, who was now working in America, told me uh, that the anthrax scare was completely wrong. They were not being that uh, Saddam Hussein did not have capacity to produce anthrax and weaponize it, and so on. He could not get that story published. Wow. Pre-Iraq invasion, the anthrax was one biological weapons was one of the things. So I know again I would have said, let's have a serious inquiry about this WND. I personally, I'm telling you now, that what I've heard persuades me he does have WND, but my certainty is worth nothing mm. unless you investigate it. Uh, I think uh, 
We were very slow on Northern Ireland, but as you see in the book, we got into. We really did manage to. The uh, another thing again, uh, just. Uh, I mean, I would like to investigate in a serious way. How is it? Really, it's difficult. This I think that the the gun culture here is appalling. How is it? We know, I know the broad outlines, the NRA raises a lot of money mm -hmm. from people who think they're going to lose their right to weapons, which I think is a pernicious right and a misreading of the American Constitution. Anyway, the Supreme Court doesn't agree at the moment. Mm -hmm. How is it the NRA has this power? Who is the NRA? Who are these individuals? Nobody's portrayed the NRA for who they are. There's a guy called Wayne Lapierre who keeps making seven. Okay, where does Wayne Lapierre come from? What are his interests? How much do the gun manufacturers pay them? It's a major story waiting to be done, and nobody will, nobody does it. Mm. I wrote a piece about, which was called Accomplices to Massacre, after the last gun massacres. I was, we were overwhelmed on the website by angry letters. I, didn't, I got very mm -hmm. few supporters. So you're dealing with a primitive... Uh, culture, in a sense, in, in America, in this, and also corrupt. And so it really needs a lot of careful investigation. Another thing I'll give, mention to you is that I've said to me, a scepticism about WD, MWD, but scepticism, which is very useful quality to have in the face of received wisdom, right. is wrongly deployed. For instance, when I've written about this in Columbia Journalism, the National Security Commission, headed by Gary Hart and Warren Rudman, goes around the world for two years, commissioned by the Senate to look into the attitudes to America around the world. Mm. And they come back, they're pretty appalled. The rise of Islamic fundamentalism, the feeling that America is an imperialist power, uh, is misusing its power, all this, and they put it all together. And they wrote a report, one sentence of which, which is pretty, became pretty famous, said America is sure to be attacked and American blood will be set on American soil. And the same report also said, by the way, it's entirely feasible that we have no means, if there's an attack on a high-rise building, of getting people out of a fire on the 29th floor. Gary Hart's point. I would like to have done this, I'm just telling you the story. Yeah. As I say, I wrote this piece for Columbia Journal. When that report came out in January 2001, they went to all the newspapers and TV stations before they called the press conference in the Senate office. Said this is a pretty important report, we hope you'll cover it. Well, all reporters and TV cameras were there. New York Times reporter walked out. He said, it's boring stuff. Nothing in the New York Times. Wow. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Two seconds or so on Tom Brokaw, a bit on CNN, a bit in the Washington Post. Nothing commensurate with the nature of the story. W w why is that? Well, why is it? You know, I called up Warren Hart and Gary Rudman and asked them. He said, we were just appalled. And we went to see the editor of the New York Times and asked him, he said, look, you've missed this story. He said, oh, write me an op-ed page. So they wrote him an op-ed page and he spiked it, didn't use it. 
I called Jill Abrams, who's now number two of the New York Times, and she was in Washington at the time. I said, you know, you're sent a reporter to this press conference. I'm writing a piece for Columbia Journal's Review. Would you like to give me a comment on why you didn't cover this story? And did she? <laughs> she said, I'm not going to look back in the files. I'm not going to look back on the files on a six-month-old story. So no, she wouldn't give me any comment at all. So I wrote the piece in Columbia Journalism. Now, what I would like to have done at the time, instead of just writing my piece in Columbia Journalism, is go to every editor who made those wrong decisions and ask them. And ask them. Then follow up with what happened to an administration. So when the report was presented to the administration, I said to Hart, what happened? He said, well, the press took absolutely no notice of it, as I've just described. So he went, when he went to uh, Condé Rice, was said, you know, intelligent woman, she gets abused too much, actually. And she said, it's an important report. And she said, uh, I would like to advance it. March, this is. She said, but I've been told that uh, not for me, it's been given to a very senior person, and he is going to examine it. Mr. Dick Cheney will report in October 2001, but of course in September 2001 it was too bloody late. Now, so what were the congressmen doing? What were the press doing? This is the kind of thing journalism I'm interested in. It just is... It's kind of evanescent. It goes, it disappears... It's part of history. And there are hundreds of instances like this. I mean, you've had some good investigations. I thought the New York Times recently did an absolutely fabulous job, though they don't know how to design that paper, mm. on the excessive exposure to radiation of cancer patients mm. who, are, where, who go into machine treatments which are incompetently handled, so they're burned. And they're probably killed, basically. And the Times did a superb job of investigating that. To be fair to them, to be fair to them, they've followed up with news stories. However, I think if it had been the Sunday Times and we'd had that story, we would have uh, seen the benefit, in my view, of the integration of opinion and news, because I would have used the opinion columns. Right. Not simply to write it once, as I said, never truth, but actually to take it up as an issue and go to every congressman and every local authority and bang, 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 until we've got it solved. This is what I mean about persistence. That's a, again, remarkable answer. Uh, look, clearly the ability of newspapers to do things like this depends on the resources that they have. Now, the industry in the U.S. today is in a mess. Yeah, it is. A study by the Pointer Institute reckons that since 2000, the newspaper industry has lost $1.6 billion in annual reporting and editing capacity. How can newspapers take up such well, projects today? Thing, I mean, the first thing is that just is the negative. Many of the newspapers facing economic problems had been making profits of 33% for years and years and years. They never built up any kind of defensive mechanism distributed to the shareholders, Wall Street. So I thought the management of many newspapers, they didn't have a fallback position. So temporary difficulties or difficulties in my last two or three years or five years. Secondly, they did the worst thing in the world, many of them. 
And he saw it in Philadelphia with the night written newspapers, which did a very good job on the few newspapers, which did a good job for Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the editor, Eugene Roberts, just over the road here, I've often discussed this with him, what he faced when the owners of the paper declared we're going next year for a... We're profits of 21%, we must go to 23% next year. I wrote a piece for strategy and business and I said, this is a prescription for disaster because you can't go into the newsroom and say our, our goal for next year... You can go into the newsroom and say our goal for next year is to expose the corruption of the dental industry or whatever. It's to have a 23% profit and by the way, don't tell anybody, but we're going to save a lot of money on editorial. So, okay, so they started slashing. They had to sell the paper. Next guy who comes, next company that comes in, what do they do? They continue that, but they increase the marketing staff by 70. Hello? What are you marketing? Same at Newsday here. Newsday here, which I wanted my friend Walt Sockerman to buy. It was a good local paper. What have they done? The cable guys who own it? You guessed. Okay. They've uh, slashed the local news staff, so there's no local news virtually. Then when they go and create an online service, which is the right idea, how many people sign up? Having slashed the news, which made the heart of the paper? 35. So that paper's had it. (laughs) So now that's what I call the undoing the negatives. On the positive side, I think, my own view, I must come to an end here, I've got an 11.30 call to make. My own view is that things like the Daily Beast have a tremendous future. Mm-hmm. And I think my wife is determined to do investigative journalism, I'll say have sufficient resources, your earlier point. And they have already, of course, the immediacy and the high quality of image making and the ease of distribution. I mean, when you can... Uh, I've also written, spoken about this. You can actually get a newspaper printed in your house here <laughs> with the Hewlett-Packard, it's 2,900 saves 33% of the cost of paper. I would like to see those Xerox or Hewlett-Packard machines around all the diners and you put your palm print on and you get the newspaper out because I still think there's a great utility in print uh, for a variety of reasons. So I don't think the uh, circulations will remain. Nonetheless, advertising revenue in print is still vastly higher than on the web. As I said in my paper chase, what matters to me isn't the vehicle, it's the journalism. I don't care whether it's delivered electronically or by a camel. I want to know what the journalism is. Right, no, absolutely. Now I've got to close. One final question. um, Because we've just done over an hour and I've got to make a call at 11.30. Sure. It's um, very nice talking to you because you ask such good questions. I have about half my questions left. <laughs> well, but uh, okay.
Okay, let me ask you this question. You're very upbeat about journalism in the age of the internet. Uh, do you see any successful business models that can support and sustain excellent journalism? Business models? Well, I tell you, you know, I mean, my wife just ran. This may be a... She just did the Women of the World Summit. You look at the Daily BCC, a fantastic conference. I mean, unbelievable. Not that it was particularly well reported by the rest of the media. But this was reporting at its very best. You got a first-hand report from woman rape in the condo, a first-hand report of what FGC does to women and the devastation it does. You got a first-hand report on ending the war in Liberia. You got a marvelous report from the police chief in India. Mm -hmm. And you got a marvelous report from Krishnan, who was uh, saving women from brothels in India. And fantastic. Now, that was sponsored by Hewlett Packard and by others. And Tina went around and raised money. The Daily Beast and its own resources could never have done that. But here they brought to light something that really good newspapers could have done with their resources, or if they had the, the conscience and the inclination. So I think, yes, I think the business model might be sponsorship by successful organizations with the public spirit. That happens already. Uh, the monetization, the growth and popularity of websites. And maybe the... Uh, some kind of merging between websites and print so that print becomes cheaper by the means I've just described and who knows, you make it even cheaper still uh, with the, coupled with the immediacy of the web and coupled with the recognition very slow, the advertising industry is very conservative that this is a way to do it now I much prefer the semi-commercial models to uh, I don't mind something like uh, what Paul, Paul uh, Steinberg is running, you know, Public Affairs. Uh, or I'm a patron pro, in England. ProPublica? Pro yeah. yeah, and I'm a patron in England of a new investigative foundation-backed mm -hmm. site. I'm fine for all this. Any, all of them are better than any kind of government sponsorship. You do not want government anywhere near any of this. Mm -hmm. Nowhere. Apart from the inevitable vast bureaucracies you get and all the restrictions, etc., etc., and all the politics. So, so I'm hoping that there's some kind of a, a commercial way. And the same questions have to go to books. And this is because, and I believe Jason Epstein wrote a very good article in the New York Review of Books, which you I did. think is true. We've got a absolutely book as a it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, marvelous piece, of marvelous piece. Yes. Jason's a wonderful writer. Uh, by the way, he's, you know, he's like me, he's passionately interested in digitally creating the espresso machines, but he's also passionately interested in the book as a cultural artifact. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. I could talk. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.